Transform your investment strategy with the MD Platinum Global Private Equity 2023 Trust. This unique offering exclusive to physician families uses non-traditional strategies that allow you to diversify your portfolio and potentially help grow your wealth over the long term. With access to institutional level private equity opportunities, this solution could be what you need to help you meet your financial goals. Learn more about this limited time opportunity at mb.ca slash private equity. Welcome to a special episode of the MD Market Watch podcast. I'm your host, Alex Chung, content manager with MD Financial Management. This episode is a playback of a recent webinar hosted by Samantha Finlay, AVP of Sales Readiness, and featuring Julie Petrera, National Lead of Financial Planning Content, and Jean-Francois Bordelot, Senior Practice Manager, Investments. With the U.S. election just around the corner and market volatility on the rise, the webinar was an interesting and open discussion on the possible outcomes, effect on markets, policy, and the global economy, and of course, the potential impact on your personal finances. So please enjoy. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us tonight. As the election saga continues in the United States, the speculation as to the possible outcomes and their potential impacts continues to increase. And while every U.S. election makes waves on a global scale, several factors at play have Canadian investors feeling an increased amount of uncertainty as we approach November 3rd. My name is Samantha Finley, and I'm going to be your moderator. Tonight, we are going to have the opportunity to engage in a frank and open dialogue with two of MD Financial's experts on these possible U.S. election outcomes and their potential financial impacts. Now, before we dive into any few housekeeping items, I want to express a very warm welcome to all of the MD clients on the webinar today. As you might anticipate, we have had an outpouring of interest for this topic. You are all in good company with over 2,500 of your colleagues and family members anticipated to attend tonight. At MD Financial, our success is built on providing the expertise required to address the unique financial needs of physician households right across Canada. While many physicians and spouses like yourself have chosen MD Financial, believe it or not, there are many that have yet benefited from the physician-focused expertise that we have. And perhaps a few physicians or spouses that you might know personally, and physicians we would love to meet but more about that later. Tonight, we have planned for 60 minutes of conversation. The first 30 to four minutes will be focused in on the most popular questions that we have been hearing. And after that, we're gonna open it up for a Q&A that will have uh, about 20 to 30 minutes of your questions addressed. Now, given the interest in this topic, we likely won't get through everyone's questions tonight, but we have a large team of advisors waiting on standby to respond to each and every question directly with you over the coming days. Tonight, we will be talking politics, but we want to be clear that from the beginning that we are not expressing any political views or affiliations. Any statements today are made on the what if and are meant to represent a balanced view of all outcomes with a focus on economic matters. It is not a review of each candidate's social politics. Now, let's get into some introductions. On the webinar today, I I'm very happy to introduce to all of you, Julie Petrera. Julie has worked in the financial services industry for about 15 years in various roles, mostly in financial planning. Julie has her MBA. She is a certified financial planner, a chartered investment manager, and her most notable credential is she's a physician spouse. Julie has been with 
us at MD for six years and has been managing the finances in her own physician household for the last 10 years. Julie is passionate about learning and teaching all things financial. In addition to her work at MD, Julie also writes financial articles for physicians and Canadians that explain complex financial planning strategies in an easy to understand and apply manner. When Julie is not working or writing, she is probably running or spinning. When it's safe to do so, she plans to go back to traveling because her favorite place to travel is to Italy where she lived with her husband for a few years before joining MD. Now let me introduce to you Jean-Francois Bordelot, or more simply, JF, as we like to call him. He is an advisor to advisors, and he's been with MD for the last 22 years. In addition to being a wealth of knowledge around anything investment related, JF spends his time learning about socio-political trends around the world and how they may have an impact on other aspects such as the economy. Over the years, JF has authored select investment pieces for MD on asset allocation, style diversification, and precious metals. And he's even been quoted in industry publications on topics such as cryptocurrency. Pre-pandemic, JF was an avid traveler and fully intends to go back to traveling around the world to better understand different cultures once it's safe to do so. In time, he is binge watching whatever he finds on Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, and CBC Gem. Welcome to you, Julie and JF. Now let's kick it off. We all have one big question to ask. Who do you think is going to win the US presidential election? We've got some answers flying in here. We've got about half of you have voted. That's good. Means you're getting used to the system here. That's excellent. Couple more seconds. I think we've got a clear winner coming in. Sure, you won't be surprised. Sounds like on this call, the answer is Biden. Okay. Very interesting. Still a few Trump supporters out there and even some independents. Well, let's look to JF and Julie. JF, I would, or actually, Julie, I'd love to hear from you on uh, who you think is going to win the US presidential election. Well, I can take that one. So the answer is whoever wins the Electoral College. A quick refresher on how the US presidential election is determined. The winner of the election is not he who is elected by the majority of Americans. Rather, it's the person with the most electoral college votes. Trump, for example, did not win the popular vote in 2016, but was elected president. Each state essentially has an election to elect electors, who will then vote for the president on behalf of their state. Some states have lots of votes, so their vote for the president can really impact the election results. These states include California, Texas, New York, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Some of these states are definitely voting one way or another, and the unknown ones are known as swing states because their large vote volume can swing the election one way or another. There are a total of 538 electoral college votes in the US, so whoever wins 270 or more is elected president. Awesome, Julian. Yeah, so that's a technical answer. Now, as we've seen in the survey, I mean, I think part of the question that, that some of you want to see, you know, if we have a crystal ball or something is, you know, Biden or Trump. And as we said early on, I mean, we, we do not have a view 
but we are looking at data. I mean, being from Canada, I mean, Canada over the last several years, I've had a tendency to uh, favor uh, the Democratic nominee. Uh, you can see that in Europe as well. That's not uncommon. But unless we're US citizen, we do not get to vote in the US election. And the most recent polls, um, what they show is that Biden does have a slight lead in the national uh, vote, uh, a little bit higher than what Hillary Clinton had in 2016. And this is what's giving many of the analysts um, some conviction that Biden is likely going to be uh, the, the next US president. I saw some data from our colleagues at Scotia Bank. I think they're looking uh, based on all the polls that they have around 50 to 60% chance of, of Biden winning the presidency. Um, you would have asked me the question one year ago though, and my answer would have been totally different. I mean, the US economy, I mean, hasn't been the best as uh, President Trump may have claimed, but it's actually been quite good. Uh, unemployment, pretty low, things like that. And it's very rare that uh, an incumbent president does get voted out when the economy is that strong or was as strong as it was back then. So what really changed is COVID-19 and the Democrats have been, I would say, fairly success successful at reframing this election as a referendum on the uh, management of COVID, uh, the measures that have been taken and a bit of a social path forward for the US. And that's what's different this time around is that even though most US elections have been about the economy, this one is about the economy, but about a lot of stuff. But guess what? In that last week, the polls are tightening it up a little bit. Trump has been very active in the campaign on the campaign trail. And it's going to be very interesting to see what's happening the night of November 3rd. I mean, right now, uh, the if you look at the 2016 participation number with early voting they're already at 46 percent of the participation rate of what it was in 2016. texas which was one of the lowest turnout state is at 91 percent of where it was in 2016. florida is around 72 percent so voter turnout is significant uh, what some of these experts uh, say on that is that mail-in and advanced voting tends to favor Democrat. Day of uh, poll voting tends to favor the Republican candidate. So we'll see. I mean, it could be clear, it could be tight. But right now, one thing I want to interest people is that this is not a done deal. Um, as Julie said, it's state by state, it's electoral college. And you know Biden could be up by 10%, but if that 10% is all in New York and California, it it may not matter at the end of the day. So uh, just just keep that in mind. Just keep that in mind. That's really interesting. Thank you for that, JF, and thanks, Julie, for that refresher. Um, so how does this all impact the markets leading up to and even following the election? I mean, volatility is is something that we see usually ahead of every election and sometimes in the days following the election. Uh, there is an index, it's called the VIX. No, this is not the thing that you rub on your body. It's spelled V-I-X. Uh, it's trading on the Chicago uh, Board of uh, Derivative and CCBOE. Um, and right now it's at the highest level it's been since about June at around, I think I saw 40 earlier today. So what this index measure is 
uncertainty. And what this index is telling us right now is that there's a lot to be uncertain about. Yet the U.S. election, I would argue, is a bit of a drop in the water right now on that uncertainty index. Um, rising case of COVID, like France has been talking about basically national lockdown coming back. You know, a few months ago, they say, no, no more countries. It's not going to be full lockdown. It's going to be local measures here and there. And now that seems to be a bit more severe than what it was. So we have to be careful not to conclude that the current volatility is totally due to the upcoming U.S. election. It, it is playing a part of the uncertainty. It is playing a part in the volatility, but this is not the full story. Um, one study I saw about a, a month ago, I mean, and I, if I simplify it, said if the equity market, let's say it's up 10% in October, well, then it tends to be down 10% in November or vice versa, uh, because the market anticipate when the president is there, the uh, uncertainty dissipates and market kind of comes back to whatever equilibrium there they're supposed to be. So will we see bump? Yes. Will we see volatility? Yes. Uh, but it should even out as far as the election is concerned. So. And what happens, JF, if it's not a clear win? I mean, the odds that we do not know who will be the winner the evening of November 3rd is actually quite high. Uh, and the reason for that is all the advanced voting I talked about. Uh, in states such as Pennsylvania, they cannot count the advance ballots until the day of the election. And guess what? There's a lot of them. So the odds that Pennsylvania can say, hey, you know what? Yeah, we can certify the vote or that the media can say, you know what? Yeah, we've got enough of the result from Pennsylvania to call Pennsylvania one way or another is low. And Pennsylvania is one of those four very important states with Florida, Michigan, and Wisconsin, that could determine the presidency. I mean, these are four states right now that are really, really tight. Uh, most of the polls give a weak, really weak advantage to Biden at this point in time. And if these four states are too close to call, then most network won't call the election. And then whoever might lose won't concede. Um, so it's, it's not the end of the world. I mean, uh, there will be a bit of more uncertainty. The market may be volatile a little bit until the the uh, you know the, the outcome is potentially settled. But the possibility that we know the outcome on November third, I would say, is 50-50. Um, if the result is one-sided and lopsided, then I mean we we may know on on the third. Uh, or if we've got all the votes and, and then it's really really tight. I mean, 2000 is an example of what can happen if if things kind of get extended a little bit. So I would say it's a possibility, but the market will just say, okay, we don't like the fact that we don't know who that is. But uh, I think, uh, you know, Julia, uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, on that one? Yeah, I would agree with you. Anytime there's any type of uncertainty, we're likely to see volatility in the market. What we do know is that there will eventually be a clear win. We just might have to wait a little longer for it to be confirmed. What also matters and can impact investor sentiment and therefore the market is what happens in the meantime. So these, those events you mentioned leading up to the official presidential win. So while Americans will vote up until November 3rd, the Electoral College will officially cast their votes on behalf of their state on December 14th, right? So this is the Monday after the second Wednesday in December. The counting of those votes is completed on January 6th 
And that's the day of the, that the official election results are declared. And then on January 20th, the president is inaugurated. So as far as markets go, we could see additional volatility around all of these key dates as investors react to the certainty of the election settling in. So those dates again are November 3rd, December 14th, January 6th, and January 20th. Okay, and so let's fast track like after the election. So depending on who wins, we're likely going to see very different policies that are going to have very, very different impacts on the economy overall. So what kind of what kind of comments could you share on that? So let's start with what would actually be very similar. Um, both Democrats and Republicans right now are running a bit of a America first approach. If you look at the debates in this election, there hasn't been much about foreign policy. And usually that's a pretty important topic, but very little this time around and very little on global trade. So both parties uh, differently uh, want to protect America. I mean, both said they will have a tough on China stance. Um, for the Democrat, it's around very strong labor protection in any trade agreement that may be negotiated. Whereas the Republicans said that we will negotiate more bilateral trade agreement. But again, it's on terms that are perceived to be beneficial or neutral to the United States. So that's what you're seeing right now. So, th so the trade, I would say, is maybe a little bit different, but in spirit is a bit similar, where it's kind of an America first approach. Where there are some big differences, for example, around regulation. Um, the Republicans have very little interest in further regulament, uh, regulations in the financial service space. Uh, they may actually say, you know what, less, le less is more. Whereas the Democrats said, you know what, we, we may need a bit more regulation there. Um, another area where the two are actually aligned is tech companies like the Facebook and Twitter. Both said that, not so much that they want to break it down, but they want to review the protections that these firms do have in terms of publishing and being uh, liable and responsible for the kind of that's posted. And some are wondering whether they are too big and maybe should be broken up and things like that. So there might be pressure on some of these tech companies. Uh, infrastructure, both have plans to spend money. It's in different areas, but the dollar amounts are about the same. It's about $1 trillion in both cases on infrastructure. It just happened to be different kind of infrastructure. Um, maybe the last aspect, and that's probably the biggest difference between the two parties, is it, it, it has to do with the economy, uh, but it's, I would say the social aspect of the economy. And so we can talk about healthcare, um, so the, the Democrats have a plan for providing, I'm not going to call it universal health care, but a, a broader health care plan for, for American, uh, whereas uh, the Republicans on paper, I mean, they're still kind of fighting some of the thing of the so-called Obamacare and rolling back some, some of these provisions. So very different views on the uh, all called socioeconomic aspect. And I mentioned health care, but there's a few more areas. Um, that are different. So when you, you look at it that way, that will impact the market differently in some aspect, similarly in others. Um, and yeah, maybe I'll leave it at that for now. Jeff, do you want to comment on the Federal Reserve and how that fits into all of this? So having nothing to do with the presidential election, but how does that impact market sentiment? Yeah, so that's, that's, that's a fair, that's actually not a fair point. That's a great point, Julie. Um, a lot of 
focus is put on the president. And even before I go to the Federal Reserve, uh, there's also the House of Representatives, Congress and, Sen and the Senate. And the executive can decide certain things, but most of these things have to go through at House of Representatives. So I would say they have as much, if not a greater impact on policies than just the president himself. So that's number one. But what that group does is what we call um, the fiscal policy. So taxes, uh, trades, uh, commerce, those kind of things. The Federal Reserve, it's all about interest rates. And right now with governments that are borrowing, like there's no tomorrow, and for, for a good reason, I mean, there is a global pandemic going on. Um, having low interest rates is something that is important. So monetary policy is important for the government. Monetary policy is important for uh, consumers and spenders, for savers. Uh, so this is very important up until I would say, again, a year ago, very few people were talking much about fiscal policy uh, as, as having an impact. I mean, we, when Trump was elected, he did do the tax cuts and that had a, an impact at the time, positive impact on the equity market. Uh, but it was all about, was mostly about monetary policy. Um, and I'll add maybe a last one. It's the resolve of the American people. Uh, one stat I was reading a month ago is that the number of business startup in the US right now is almost at a record high. So politics can go one way. The Federal Reserve can go one way, but you put the American people under pressure, whether it's economic or else. And we saw that in 2008. That was the most affected country, but yet they're the country that got back on their feet the fastest. So one thing I've learned in my 22 years in investment is that when the US appears to be in a, in a corner, don't necessarily bet against the US economy and the US stock market. So that's something to, to be very mindful. So yes, on the fiscal, so the, the legislative and the executive, yes, on the Federal Reserve, but the people as well play a very important role. Yeah, and I would just layer into that the economy is not the same as the stock market um, and that there should be a lag between what happens in the economy and what happens in the market or there could be no relationship at all. Mm -hmm. So we've seen that. We've seen stock markets go rogue. Markets are the product of investor supply and demand, sometimes described as investor fear and greed. Humans don't always do what they ought to do uh, based on economic policy and how we expect that to play out. Even if we can determine what might happen in the economy based on who we think would be the president, that doesn't mean it's going to show up that way in the stock market. In fact, we typically see most of the volatility leading up to the election, not following the election. And we saw some of this today. Yep, exactly. So what do you expect will happen in the markets? Like, is there any kind of general rule of thumb that we can latch on to? Is there any sort of pattern for reactions? Depending on if it is Republican or is a Democratic win, is there anything we can kind of hold on to? Any rule of thumb there? There's a few things there. Um, I believe we have a little bit of a visual, but uh, while we wait for that, maybe I'll just offer a, uh, a few thoughts on that. So um, we, our colleagues at uh, Scotia Economics actually looked at a number of different combination. Um, so actually, so this is one slide here where we, we, we before I get to the Scotia Economics slide, um, you see here uh, different 
eras, so red would be Republican, blue would be Democrat. And the one constant that you see is that since the 1930s, or I would say the late 1930s, the market has been going up uh, pretty much regardless of who has been president. Maybe under some regime a bit more than other, but market has been going up for the most part. I mean, you saw like the Bush years, the second Bush years were a little bit tougher, but this is when you had the burst of the tech bubble in 9-11 kind of hitting at the same time. Um, so that would be tough. And then at the end of his uh, tenure, he had the great financial crisis. So pretty difficult uh, economic uh, situation for Bush Jr. Uh, when he was president. But for the most part, uh, you do see that growth over the years. Uh, there's a few stats that we'll talk about, you know, one being a little bit better than the other. Uh, but again, to the point where we're talking about earlier with Julie, um, it's not only about the president. And this is where some of the analysis from our colleagues at uh, Scotia Wealth, what they actually found out is that uh, since 1945, let's say that you had a Republican president with a Republican House. So basically, you had a red wave. The market was up on average 13%. But the market was also up 13% if you had a Democratic president with a Republican House. So basically, what it says that if the House was Republican, it doesn't matter who was the president, market performance would have been quite strong. Then, when you had a Democratic president with a Democratic House, so a blue wave, that led to about an 8% return. So lower than 13, but 8%. Historically, since 1945, the worst outcome has been a Republican president with a Demo Democratic uh, House which has led to a return of 5%. And the reality is that if you look at, at it in a certain way, in the last 90 years, 56 years, the House has been all Democrat, 20 years, it's been all Republican, and mostly since 1995. There's actually been very few years between 1930 and 1995 where both the House and the Senate, where uh, Congress and the Senate were led by Republicans. Um, so the house has been blue for most of the last 90 years. So I don't know, Julie. I mean, yeah. it's uh, it's always nice to look at, at certain charts, but I'm wondering, I mean, if you've got any thoughts on what we're seeing yeah. here. Let's keep that chart up. Um, so I would I would you know point out here that reactions are often short term, so we're seeing that. And then if we talk about the impact that this has on you as an investor. That depends, right, on a variety of things, one of them being your investment time horizon. So if you're investing for 30 years, uh, say you're saving for retirement, which is 30 years away, you're going to be, need to be invested through eight or nine US presidential elections. So you probably don't want to react to any one of those too drastically. This slide shows there's no huge difference between red and blue presidents, right? And if there are any differences, they're very short term. Your time horizon. Um, and if, you're, if your time horizon is, is shorter than, than, say, 30 years, chances are that your, hold, your holdings reflect that. If you have managed money, you're probably not overweight in U.S. stocks if you're close to retirement. We don't even live in the U.S., so it's, it's very possible to reduce exposure to election results that, uh, to what the election results have on you as an investor by investing in Canadian equities, for example. So before recommending investments, 
we determine what is suitable for you based on your risk tolerance. Your risk tolerance is determined by your investor time horizon, right? So when are you going to need access to some or all of this capital? Your investment experience, how comfortable you are with holding different types of investments, your investment knowledge, the portion of the assets you're investing. So does this investment represent your entire life savings or just a small portion of your total assets? And then ultimately we put all those together and determine how much risk you can accept and then how much risk you're willing to or want to accept. So no matter what happens in the market, if you hold managed assets, you should be well positioned to handle whatever happens in this election. It's really interesting, Julie. And I, I want to kind of play on that aspect of managed money a little bit. Curious, JF, if you can comment on managed money at MD. Yes. Um, a couple of things. So, I mean, I'll start a little bit. I'm not going to repeat what Julia said, but managed money is uh, an integral um, part of what we do and, and what we believe. So by managed money, we talk about managed portfolios where, um, you know, we set up the asset allocation, where maybe we try to add value through something we call tactical asset allocation, which is, you know, looking at some of the shorter term trend. But shorter term, we're talking 12 to 18 months, not three to six weeks. Uh, so 12 to 18 months, so when we look at those trends and adjust the portfolio just a little bit to try to benefit from those short midterm trends. And then it's hiring professional money manager. Sometimes, I mean, we have some skills. So internally, we do manage some money, uh, but also partner with uh, close to 20 different asset managers from around the world. And bringing all that together is how we create a portfolio and how we manage money for the majority of our clients. So yes, we we take into account what's going on. But for example, in the US election, what we're trying to do is, okay, let's ignore kind of the pre-election noise. Let's try to see what the election result may be. But again, to try to bet on election results um, because of what, everything that we've said, I would say it's a bit of a futile exercise. I mean, once you know what you're dealing with, then, I mean, there's a few things that are happening. I mean, the money managers can decide to move in and out of a few sectors that maybe are a bit more at risk or may have more opportunities. I mean, earlier I talked about tech, healthcare, things like that. So that would be something that on the days after the election, I mean, the money managers, and right now they've probably have done the exercise already. Around, okay, well, if Biden wins, would we do some, would we take some action? Would we do a couple of things? And in most cases, I mean, they, they wouldn't do anything significant the margin they may decide to trim some gains um put um put money into things that have been less loved over the last couple of years like uh, value stocks i mean something that we talked about style diversification earlier earlier on and uh, values of stuff in, of investment hasn't done really really well in the last 10 years it's gonna come back at some point in time and there's there's a belief right now that a uh, that a biden win may, may help i don't know that for a fact but that's I believe that some market participants do have. Um, so in a nutshell, so I'm not sure if that's that's the kind of uh, answer you were looking for, for for that question. But I would say that that's kind of how we're uh, we're managing money at MD. Thanks, JF. I want to now start kind of playing on another aspect you had in there, a bit of a pivot in the conversation. Um, so the term "leader of the free world" has often been used to describe the president of the United mm -hmm. States. You know, after all, it's been a growth and economic engine for the last several decades. 
-hmm. So with what you're talking about with shifts and pivots, I'm wondering if the outcome of this U.S. election might change that. I mean, I, I love that question. I, I, I can't say why, but this is a question that kind of gets me going. So I'll try to keep my uh, enthusiasm for the question kind of in check. Uh, but I would say that there's two key aspects here that I'd like to talk about. Um, there's leader of the free world from, I'll call it a um, geopolitical perspective. And there's leader of the free world from an economic and equity market perspective. And I'll start with the, the, the first one. Um, you go back just maybe four, five, six years ago. And what happened is, let's say that you were on a plane. Odds are that this plane was certified by the FAA in the United States. Could have been by a similar body in Europe. But if it's a Boeing plane, it was certified. And people say, you know what? The FAA certified, good enough for us. Uh, you take medication. Maybe the FDA approved it. Health Canada will review and do their own review. But they may have borrowed some data from the FDA to, to validate what they're doing. CDC, if the CDC says, you know what, this is dangerous and this is what you have to do, usually the world would kind of listen to what the CDC would say. So very strong US institutions that were recognized around the world. But then Trump came in and part of his platform in 2016 said, hey, you know what? The world is getting a free ride on the back of our US institutions. And factually speaking, he was actually right on that because it is true that other countries were not investing as much into some of the aspects I've mentioned because they were relying on the U.S. to take care of that. And that's in addition to the military uh, that uh, Trump has been quite vocal around some countries not spending enough. Uh, so from that perspective, I mean, I would say very consciously, President Trump has said, we'll do what's right for our country, but you know, France, you do whatever you want. Canada, you kind of do whatever you want and you'll pay for your stuff. I mean, that, that free ride on us is kind of game over. That was very conscious. So you got that aspect. Now the economic aspect and where the economic aspect usually goes is, is China overtaking the US? And the answer is yes, no, maybe. Um, and I'll bring us back down memory lane 20 years ago. 20 years ago, one measure I'm going to use is something called the GDP, gross domestic product. That's a measure that basically looks at the size of the overall economy for a country. And I will use the, the style called nominal, which is the one that we usually hear about when the GDP is quoted. But it's another one that takes into account um, the purchasing power where I'm not going to go to, I'm just going to make a brief mention on. So if you go back in 2020, the US economy was 10 trillion dollar. That was the biggest economy in the world. Second economy was Japan at close to 5 trillion. Then most European countries were in the one and a half kind of range. Canada was at three quarter of a trillion and China back 20 years ago, 1.2 trillion. So US 10, Japan 5, China 1.2. But 20 years ago, who's the boss in Asia? It's Japan. But then a few things happened. I mean, China decided to move into an export economy, um, you know, based on the, like the Walmart economy and things like that. And its economy grew. And what happened in the next 20 years? That most major economies doubled the size of their economy. 
So U.S. moved from about 10 trillion to 20 trillion or so. Canada went from three, quor three quarter to one and a half. Uh, Europe went from one and a half to two to about three to four. Japan stayed flat. Japan absolutely no growth. But at five, it stayed at five. China, oh, U.S. from 10 to 20 something. China, 1.2 to 15. That's a multiple of over 10. So when people say, oh, China's gonna overtake the world, well, they're looking at that data. They saw the, the speed at which China has been growing. And this is true. And if I use the one on price purchase parity, the Chinese economy right now is actually bigger than the US economy. You could argue, and that's why you see the, the, the trade dispute between the two countries, because this is a, this is political, but also economic. And so the China, China see a bit of an opening and say, you know what, maybe we can be that central economic system. Maybe we can be that, that uh, central uh, system overall. But that overlooks one little piece of data. And I talk about the resilience of the US or American people earlier. So if you look at that GDP number by divided by the number of people that live in that country, so GDP per capita, the average American uh, citizen or resident is responsible for about $65,000 of economic output. The average Chinese citizen is responsible for about $12,000 of economic output. So yeah, the China economy on a total basis is big, but the US economy is way more productive. I mean, 15 to 20% of the world economy right now still rest with the US consumer. 40% of the GDP in China is government. 70% of the economy in the US is the consumer. So you see, it's not the same economy. But obviously, economically, I am not writing off the US just yet. Yet China could overtake if they develop a true consumer-based economy. It could grow. They could try to challenge the U.S. for it, but they still have a way to go. And 65 versus about 10. And that's the number right now that I'll uh, maybe end that uh, passionate response on whether the, the U.S. is still the leader of the free world. Thanks, Jeff. So I'm so curious now to figure out how that relates to the equity markets, like what that means for returns and equity performance, and that's a difficult one to predict. So why don't we turn to the audience one more time? Um, this is a fun place to do a quick poll on which country do you think has had the best equity market returns year to date? So if you, maybe you know, maybe it's a guess, but curious to find out from the audience. We've got lots of folks coming in at about 10% responses, lots more to come in. No cheating, no Googling, the answer <laughs> to this one. <laughs> I would say the, the, the results appear to be very stable right now. I'm seeing uh, how people are, are voting and I know we're not done, but it's, uh, it's somewhat how I expected it with the US kind of leading. We've got about a third of them coming in. Looks like we might have a clear win here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So U.S. I'm not surprised. I'm not shocked. I mean, every time when I, I do this live or virtual, 
U.S. either comes up as best or worse. And the reason for that is, is headlines. I mean, we live in Canada. We open the, the, the Globe and Mail or we go on the web. We're going to go to CNN Business or MSNBC or Bloomberg. We're going to have U.S. headlines. And if it says U.S. equity as a all new time high, then people will say, well, U.S. has done the best. If it says, you know, U.S. has had the worst decline ever, well, U.S. has done the worst. And this is normal because this is what we're fed. That's information that we see. So we'll, 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 we'll reach that conclusion. Um, but the answer is actually Denmark uh, has been the best year to date. If it would have done that survey last month, New Zealand would have been number one. Uh, and interestingly, actually, the, the fourth biggest stock in New Zealand is an airport which you would think right now would be going nowhere. Uh, but what you've got in Denmark is actually a big chunk of the index is healthcare and biotech company. Uh, and that explained part of the strong performance there. Taiwan was actually not that far behind uh, Denmark either. So those three countries, Denmark, New Zealand, and Taiwan, uh, year to date, have done better than the US. Reality though is that Denmark is a very small chunk of the world economy and the world stock market. So is New Zealand. So is Taiwan. So if we look at the big, big economies, yes, the US has been one of the best performing. China has actually outperformed everybody else. Didn't put them on a survey not to skew uh, the result, but China has done actually fairly well this year. Um, the US have done good as far as developed traditional markets. Um, but as I said, it's uh, that's why I always tell people, look beyond the headline. Go read on page three of the newspaper to get those stories. Or if you're on the web, click on those related links if they appear safe. Uh, sometimes you may get on weird pages if you click on those related links. That's a good point, Jeff. And I just want to say thank you for reading the second and the third page of the paper for me. I appreciate yeah, that. <laughs> um, so I'm curious to now bring this conversation home to Canada, right? We've talked a lot internationally. We've talked about the United States quite a bit. I'm curious to know uh, your thoughts, JF, on how you think the Canadian markets might react to all of this. I mean, we, we've got a couple of trends already at play in Canada without the impact of the U.S. economy that we, we need to look into. The um, you know, price of energy has been kind of up and down. Energy remains a very significant part of our equity market and a significant impact on the uh, fortunes or the wealth of uh, residents in a few provinces in Canada. So that's kind of a bit of the headwind that we've had. Um, I mean, there was a point this year where oil prices were close to zero. They've recovered nicely since then, and that sector has done better, but it's not at the level where it needs to be to kind of be sustainable and profitable. So that's even before the result of the US election. Um, manufacturing is kind of coming back. Uh, financials another big sector in Canada, and financials have kind of been weak-ish. So now you add the result of the U.S. election to to some of these things, and so Biden has been on the record that he's not too keen on continuing things such as Keystone XL, which could mean that the pipeline maybe gets canceled or gets more expensive to build, and then TC Energy would have to decide what they do. Uh, with, with that project and things like that. So that means potentially less oil flowing from, from Canada to some of the terminals in the US. So economically, that's not a great news, especially for, for Alberta and some of the uh, bordering provinces. 
Um, so that's one thing to to watch for. Uh, but on the pause, well, I don't know if it's a positive, but one thing you will see is more normal trade relationship. I talked earlier that the Democrats would still pursue a America first approach, and that may have either a neutral or slightly negative impact to Canada. But at least it's not going to be, it wouldn't be as much of an in your face diplomacy as we're seeing with Trump was like, hey, yeah, today I decided to put tariff on aluminum and okay, now I'm going to sign an order that, you know what, it's off. Uh, so with Biden would be like, okay, well, right now we're seeing this. We're not too keen on that. Let's try to negotiate. Let's try to find a way. Um, so, I mean, it might be more protected. It might be longer. It may lead to better outcome. Um, but, but trading uh, and global trading is still going to be a bit of an issue with, with the Democrats. The one thing that's been um, potentially perceived, though, as a positive in the short term is that the Biden presidency could help the Canadian dollar somewhat. Uh, so for those who are looking to, to buy U.S. dollars and things like that, that might be maybe a bit of a good news. And especially if they start to raise taxes. Um, I mean, you could argue that Canada may have to raise taxes at some point in time too with all the spending happening as a result of COVID. But let's just say that let's say Canada doesn't move much on taxes and the U.S. does move somewhat. Uh, then, I mean, that could uh, flow some money around, uh, corporate or individual and things like that. So there's a few things here. So there's no clear, clear, clear cut answer. But I would say let's just continue to look at some of the factors impacting Canada. And, uh, you know, election kind of just adds to that or takes away a little bit from that. Yeah. Yeah. Julie, I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, the question was, you know, how does that like we're bringing it home to Canada. So in talking about Canada, I want to call out financial planning in Canada. So I've lived and worked in Europe and the UK, and I have to say Canada is a leader in this space when it comes to planning. And when I say planning, I mean all aspects of the financial plan, right? So of which investing, also known as asset management, is only one piece of the puzzle. So we can also look at debt repayment, budgeting, tax retirement, estate planning, risk management. By considering all of these factors together, we can shift the focus from what we can't control, uh, like who wins the U.S. election, to what we can control, like how much tax you pay in certain situations. So while the US market will impact the economy and the markets, planning can have a much bigger impact on each of you as individuals and your ability to meet your personal financial goals. And that's why we're all here, right? Everybody came to this webinar to understand how does this impact me? Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so at this point, we're, you know, 13 minutes to the end of the hour. So I'd love to transition to making sure we give everybody here an opportunity to ask some questions. We've got quite a few people on the line here. So want to open it up. If you haven't submitted a question or a comment already, uh, this is the time to do so. So please feel free to do that. If we can't get to it today, like I said, we'd be more than happy to answer your question or address your comment after the session today over the next couple of days. Um, as we transition to that portion and I wait for these questions to fly in, I get a chance to quickly take a look at the themes. Uh, there was one big question that we had coming into the webinar today, uh, and I'll throw this over to you, JF. One of the big questions, and we've got a lot of clients on the line today, is they would like to know how, in particular, is MD positioned uh, and prepared to handle all of what we've discussed today? So as of now, and I checked in with our asset management group today just to make sure that our, our positioning was still kind of valid 
um, so 12 to 18 months, we, we do believe that, you know, regardless of who is elected U.S. president, um, you know, the, the COVID situation at some point in time is likely going to normalize, which will lead to pretty strong or stronger than usual economic recovery, which bodes fairly well for the equity market in probably let's say 2021 and or 2022. So from that perspective, we do have a very slight bias toward equities versus the more defensive fixed income. And from a regional basis, we still favor the US. The US has a lot of momentum right now. Although the last couple of days, I mean, we, we've seen some gains being taken, uh, but there's still quite a bit of momentum. Um, you know, we talk about some of the pressure on, on Canada, but Canada is, is not a, a bad place. An emerging market has been coming back strongly as well. International equities has been a little bit of a weak spot or, or weaker spot with, with Canada, but US and EM, I've seen some, some wind at their back. International and Canada, I've seen a bit of headwind, uh, but one thing that we do have is, uh, again, uh, there's a few other ways that we have, but the most notable one would be a very slight, very slight overweight to US equities. Okay, thanks, Jeff. And what about from your perspective, Julie, how, how can we here at MD help physicians on the line? How are we positioned from a financial planning perspective? Yeah, we, we know physicians, right? Um, we know how different events impact physicians or we learn how they do very quickly. So let's take COVID, right? Physicians were disproportionately impacted here. We spoke to our partners, the PTMAs, provinces, and we determined how physicians and, and their households were impacted and how we could help. So whether that was helping to make remuneration adjustments, uh, adjusting retirement income strategies, accessing emergency funds, we're on it. So, you know, to answer the question, how is MD positioned to handle all of what we discussed? We know positions and we get in position to handle anything that impacts them financially. Okay, great. So I do have one question that seems to be coming up quite repeatedly and it's, we We've touched on it a little bit, um, but just briefly, and it's all about currency. Um, so the question in particular is all around converting U.S. dollars to Canadian dollars or back and forth. And is there anything we should consider around timing of that? Um, any thoughts on that? So, JF, do you have any thoughts on dollars, currency, um, when we should be converting those? I mean, there, there's no clear-cut answer um, right now. I mean, I was reading a report today that said that if Trump wins, it could boost the U.S. dollar a little bit. I've seen reports that if Biden wins, it could weaken the U.S. dollar a little bit. But again, COVID may have way more impact on this, how it's being handled. Now this is impacting the U.S. economy. There's other economies in the world. Uh, you're starting to see appetite for digital currencies and stuff, which you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not impacting too, too much the U.S. dollar, but I mean, could over time. Um, so there's no perfect time or a good or, or bad time and we're not seeing like let's say like the dollar going let's say from 72 cents to uh, 85 or from 72 to 61. if we see any movement we're talking about you know three four five cents maybe either way but nothing nothing outrageous julie i'm wondering if you've got any uh, thoughts yeah. on, on to your point, this is a difficult to question, difficult question to answer sort of, you know, en masse, right? It, it really does depend on you. What are your goals? What percent of your assets do these US dollars that you're thinking about converting represent? 
What else would you use the money for in Canada or in the US? Do you have US property, expenses in the US, children in the US? Do you plan to spend part of your retirement there? So all of that, what is the opportunity cost? And, and that depends on you. Um, and, and it can impact your ability to achieve your goals. You know, where you put this money can impact your ability to achieve your personal goals more so than interest rate fluctuations. We, we don't know what the US dollar will do. We do know that there are fees associated with transferring funds back and forth and possibly tax. Um, so if and when, it's, it, it's a personal question. It depends on you. So maybe someone I would just add before we move maybe to another question is that uh, very recently we've uh, announced the way that we do manage currency here at MD and some of our funds, which allows us greater control. And we, I, I do know that we'll be sharing more information internally with our advisors on some of our views on currency and our advisor will be able to share some of those views with, with our clients as well. So there's a few reports that I know our asset team is working on. Uh, so that, that is a topic that is interesting to you. I mean, don't reach out to more morning because this is that process is, I would say, fairly new to us. I mean, we do have those views, uh, but I see that there's a couple of reports that I know we, we've been working on. So uh, stay tuned. Great. I'd like to, um, I think we have time for about one more question, and this seems to be a very popular one. Um, it's all around retirement. Um, so there's a lot of people asking they're close to retirement, near retirement, just retired or in their retirement. And they're wondering if there's any other different advice or things that they should be doing differently. If there's anything we can call out. Um, I'd love to throw that over to you, Julie. Any comments on retiring physicians or just recently retired? Yes, one of my favorite topics, right? So one of my favorite things about working with physicians is that we get to design their retirement income plan. So unlike non-physicians, right? who could have an inflexible pension plan, there are some very big planning opportunities for physician households. Retirement income can be made up of you know, corporate assets, government pension income, RSP or RIF withdrawals, TFSAs, a spouse's pension. Um, so a lot of opportunity to be very creative. And, and when you retire, I know that there are people that have been asking about you know, being close to or in retirement. When you retire, planning isn't over we get to then craft our income plan and do this most tax efficiently as possible. So there could be remuneration adjustments, income splitting, tax planning opportunities. So planning for retirement doesn't end, end when you retire. Um, it's also likely that we would tweak holdings in the portfolio to adjust for the shortened time horizon. So if you're at or near retirement, Jeff, do you wanna talk about fixed income or, or any asset adjustments we usually make? Yeah, so I mean, so so one challenge with retirement, let's say that, let's say compared to someone that was retiring maybe 20, 30 years ago, is that usually when someone was approaching retirement, there was a discussion around making the assets safer, which meant uh, a move into fixed income. Fixed income was yielding, I mean, depending whether it was 10, 20, 30 years ago, maybe, you know, three, five, eight percent, but it's not yielding anywhere near that right now. Um, so that, that concept of fixed income safe, safer sure uh, but with yields of you know half a percent to maybe two two and a half percent um you, you need to ask yourself uh, whether uh, a that's going to be sufficient and what's the appropriate risk level i mean we always have to come back to that risk level so you need to be able to sleep at night if the return is sufficient and you have a right asset mix awesome but one thing that is very different from many many years ago that wisdom to say, hey, you know what, you're at retirement, let's load up on fixed income. That might be something you, you, you talk to your advisor to see if it makes sense. Uh, good advice, Jeff. 
Um, so we talked a lot about, uh, we talked about a lot tonight, um, covering all the way from who we think might win and what the potential impacts could be and what's going on in the market and the economy. Um, so I'd love to give each of you just another 20, 30 seconds, closing comments, closing thoughts, um, as somebody, a physician or their family members, what should they walk away thinking about? And I'd love to turn that over to you, JF, first, 30 seconds. So one thing I will say is that in the short term, do expect volatility but not necessarily due to the U.S. election. You've got the situation with COVID. You've got valuation in certain stocks, so the value growth. I, I didn't spend too much time on that. I mean, but I mean, something to keep an eye on. So do expect some volatility, but keep an eye on that longer-term plan, that long-term, longer-term goal as the end game. So I'm not saying ignore the noise, but try to live with it. Great advice. Julie? Yeah, I would say the impact of the election and COVID and everything surrounding it depends on you, right? So what are your goals? What are you investing for? And that should determine how you're positioned. Our job is to set you up to be ready to handle this like any other event, ready to handle it and still meet your goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. I want to say a very big thank you to Julie and JF for being here with us tonight and giving us your frank and open insight into what's going on in the world, especially as the election is right around the corner. For our listeners, if you have any questions about what was discussed, questions about your portfolio, please don't be shy. Reach out to an MD advisor. Whether you're a client or not, we are here to help. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe to your favorite podcast provider and check out our other market commentary content available on md.ca. You'll find blog posts, videos, and much more. We'll also be having more webinars. The next topic is taxes particularly important as this year has been full of changes and your ideal tax strategy may be different. Look out for details and invitations soon. Last but not least, thank you to all the doctors and healthcare professionals for taking care of us at this time. Bye, everybody. Mm -hmm.